you again would just uh, touch our hearts with the teaching of the word. I pray that we would remember that, um, uh, Lord, I know that some people use their phones for a Bible app, and that's great. Uh, but if we're not, just to put it away and, and make sure that our phones that um, are turned down are on vibrate so we're not a distraction to anyone. And Lord, I do pray that uh, as we come to the end of a day, perhaps some of us had a very long day, busy day, started very early. Uh, help us be attentive to the things that you want to show us through your word tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So First Chronicles, again, as we go through the books of First and Second Chronicles, it's a, a recap and, and reiterates the stories of what we read about in Second Samuel through Second King. We do see that First Chronicles does put more of a spiritual emphasis on uh, the stories that we're going to read about David and then the kings of Judah. Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, does not deal with the kings of Israel, the ten northern tribes that we saw and studied about in our study of First and Second Kings. We know that all of the kings of the ten northern tribe were evil kings, but we're going to focus on as we travel through these books. And and the uh, when originally First and Second Chronicles was one book, but as we learn about David again and, and Solomon and then the kings of Judah that followed them we're going to get more of a spiritual perspective on them. But as we've gone through First Chronicles, First Chronicle also has a lot of names. Matter of fact, the first nine chapters, if you've been with us in our study, that there's genealogies, and so the genealogies are given to us, and there's an emphasis particularly on Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob and the 12 patriarchs, uh, that is the 12 sons of Jacob that made up the 12 tribes or the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And even in that, as we went over that genealogy, as we saw the sons of, of Judah and Issachar and, and the different sons um, you know, of, of Jacob, there was an emphasis on Levi because Levi is the priestly tribe, isn't it? We know that the direct descendants of Aaron's, they were the, the priests. And then the different families that are listed there in those names of the, uh, from the tribe of Levi, each one of those families, the Maronites and the, and the Gershonites and the Kohathites, they were ones that had specific responsibilities. And we didn't read all of the names as we went through all these you know, chapters, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. We kind of took a survey uh, and, and looked at certain names, and, and uh, we saw some very wonderful lessons. But one of the things that I just want to remind you that I think is uh, worth for us being reminded of that in the Bible, when you go through genealogies and you go through these names, and sometimes we can think, why all the names? One thing that it does is it encourages me. Because in these names, and particularly all the names of, of the gatekeepers and the musicians and the responsibilities that the Levites had, and we know that in chapter 6, you remember that as those names are being given, that uh, the scripture says the Levites were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle in the house of God. And this is where I want to encourage you once again, that the Lord knows you. He knew all of these individuals. These individuals were important to God enough that he records them in his word. And the tasks that they were doing, whether they were scrubbing pots or gatekeepers or they were doing whatever service in the tabernacle, that God saw it as important and that today, as in the church, realize this, that there's appointed to every kind of service in the church today and he desires to give you gifts 
The gifts of the Spirit, as you go to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, he writes, he says, there's diversity of gifts and there's differences of ministry. There's all kinds of ministry that needs to take place in the body of Christ. And even in this church, there's no shortage of, of service to be done here to minister to others, to minister to our children, to minister to our youth, to minister to others in very practical ways. And I want to encourage you for you to, to understand and for you to always remember that whatever God has you to do, that, that's important, that that's significant. And he desires to gift you and desires to continue to use you in whatever it is that he has for you. There's no shortage of service that you can do and uh, that you can be involved in for the Lord. So serve the Lord because there's great joy and there's great um, fulfillment and satisfaction in serving the Lord, and he wants to use you. He wants to gift you. It might be that you're being used to pray for the saints, intercessory prayer. It might be that you're used to work with children or in the nursery or making meals for somebody, very practical things, just as we've seen here in First Chronicles. They were helping in practical ways, and yet it was important to the Lord, and your ministry is very significant, whatever it is, and he desires for you to know that it's important to him and that you're blessing the others as you serve the Lord. So that's what we've been looking at. And then we're starting to look at David. And chapter 11, as we covered chapter 11 last week, we know that David, when after the death of Saul, Saul, who was the first king, and we even tied this in as we were looking at uh, Paul's uh, address to those Jews in Antioch on Sunday morning in Acts chapter 13, he was telling them that the, the people asked for a king. So it was uh, Saul, the, the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, and head and shoulders above everyone else who became the first king of Israel. But God rejected him. And we know that in 1 Samuel, it tells us how Saul was disobedient, unfaithful to the Lord, and that the Lord would choose another after his own heart, that was David. And David would eventually become king after Saul died on Mount Gilboa and, and his sons as 1 Samuel ends and as 2 Samuel begins to tell of the reign of David. And in the first seven and a half years of David's reign, he only reigned over the tribe of Judah there in Hebron. And then in chapter 11, of course, we saw that the elders of all the other tribes uh, came to David and said, listen, David, we know that God's hand is on you. You're the one that let us in and let us out. Uh, you're the one that was fighting on our behalf even when Saul was king, and we know that you are to shepherd the people of Israel and to be the ruler over the people of Israel, so David would become king. And we saw last week that it was David, he conquered the, the city of Jerusalem that was being inhabited by the Jebusites, and then we st started to see the names given to us of David's mighty men. And you recall that when David was running from Saul, that 400 men initially that were David's mighty men would gather unto him. And you remember that we talked about how the scriptures in 1 Samuel says that the qualifications of those mighty men were, these were guys that were in debt, in distress, and discontent. And we talked about as we come to the son of David, the greater than David, Jesus Christ, we need to understand that we are in debt to sin. Be discontent with this world. That we need to be ones that, that we need to understand that he's our rescuer. And so these guys gathered unto David. And, and we saw the lessons of David's mighty men. How you and I, as we went through and highlighted these names, we saw the principles here that if we applied in our lives, we can be mighty men and women of God as uh, we are gathered unto 
to the Lord. And the Lord desires for us to be mighty men and women for him. So I hope you're blessed as we looked at that. Now as we go into chapter 12, let's begin to read. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziglag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were uh, among the mighty men, helpers in the war and armed with bows and using both the right hand and the left hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow they were of benjamin saul's brethren so we know that david towards the end of when saul was pursuing him in the wilderness that david became discouraged and so he went to enemy territory he went to ziglag that's in philistine country and you recall that first samuel chapter 27 tells how david was there in ziglag his mighty men that would grow from 400 men to 600 men were gathered unto him and they would make these raids and it was the philistines that had thought that david defected to them and uh, so they were allowed to stay in Ziglag. And the Philistines thought, great, you know, here is Saul. He's pursuing David. They knew about that. And so David has sided with us. And David is making raids against Israel. That's what the Philistines thought. But David wasn't doing that. And David was there in that place for a while. And we know that it was these men that gathered unto David, some of them from the tribe of Benjamin. And as you look through the Old Testament, you see that the tribe of Benjamin, these guys were special warriors. Warriors. These guys were ones that were able to really, they were good archers. They were able to um, use the sword with the left and the, the right hand. They, they were mighty warriors. But I want to remind us once again, because what we're going to see as we go through this chapter, I think that we're going to see some principles and some truths here at how we can endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. You see, I want to remind us that there is a spiritual warfare that is taking place. We are called to do battle in, in, in spiritual warfare. That's what we're going to be teaching the kids at Vacation Bible School, putting on the whole armor of God, because our battle isn't with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. There's a spiritual battle that goes out there. And one of the things that I think about is, as I was going through this, you recall that Paul the Apostle, he was uh, discipling Timothy, and he had left Timothy there in Ephesus to pastor the church. And, and when you study the church of Ephesus, it's very fascinating and, and very you know, uh, amazing what God was doing in that city. What we will see in the book of Acts, that Paul the Apostle on his third missionary journey, he's going to make Ephesus his base of operation. And from there, he's there in Ephesus for three years. We know that according to Acts chapter 20. And he's there in the city. The whole city is turning to Jesus Christ. I mean, revival breaks out. Paul's making tents. And then what he was doing is he was teaching there at a school, a school of discipleship. And many young men were coming to, to know the Lord. And Paul, it, there as he's teaching at the school of Tyrannus, disciples would go out from there to different areas, uh, to Colossae say Areopolis you read the seven churches there in uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 they probably started many of those churches but there was great fruit that was taking place in Ephesus well a riot breaks out doesn't it because Paul the apostle so many people were getting saved uh, they stopped buying these little idols of Diana 
in the city of Ephesus at that time, there was a great temple, uh, Artemis, that was dedicated to the goddess Diana. And people came from all over the Roman Empire to, to worship there, this goddess of love. And there was a lot of immorality and, and um, sin that was involved in that pagan worship. And they would buy these little idols that the silversmiths there in Ephesus would make. And what we're going to see is that the silversmiths losing their business because so many people were getting saved. They were coming and they were burning the occultic books and pagan books. Revival had broken out. The silversmiths began to riot against Paul. The whole city is in an uproar. What I would love to see that, that Christians here in this community, that we're such a light that, that it affects those who are involved in sin, those places of darkness, that the light would storm those places of darkness. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. Well, Paul leaves, and eventually uh, he would uh, travel later on, and, and he would go up to Macedonia, back to Achaia. Uh, he would then begin to make his way to Jerusalem. And what we will see on his way back to Jerusalem in the book of Acts is that Paul will stop and meet with the elders at Ephesus. He will see them for the last time. And in Acts chapter 20, I love that address there. And Paul talks to them. He says, you know what manner of man I was in all seasons when I was with you. And he goes and he says that I went preaching the gospel from house to house. I held nothing back from you. And I don't count my life dear to myself, but I'm determined to finish my race with joy with the gospel that the Lord has given me to preach. And I haven't shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. And then he would go on and say to them that perverse men are going to rise up drawn disciples after themselves don't you remember how i warned you with many tears day and night for three years so paul talked about there in ephesus that false teachers would come up well eventually that would happen and then later on he would leave young timothy there and timothy was young he was kind of timid and paul wrote two letters to timothy didn't he we have it, that in the new testament is first and second timothy and paul when he left timothy there uh timothy was a little hesitant you can kind of pick that up because paul says that i urge you to stay here in ephesus as i traveled on to macedonia it was kind of like paul had to say timothy you need to stay here you need to deal with these false teachers these legalists those who are involved in the prosperity movement he, he deals with all of that in his first letter and you see that paul says you need to establish church leadership deacons and elders you need to take care of the widows you need to beware of those who come that are teaching that godliness is a means of gain have nothing to do with them those who bring in the prosperity gospel which is not the gospel at all but he would say to timothy that timothy that he would liken him to uh, in a battle, to fight the good fight, in other words. In 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1, he says that I charge, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. In other words, Timothy, you fight the good fight. And then in 2 Timothy, that's Paul's last letter before he's executed. In chapter 2, he says to them, that you be strong, my son Timothy, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that ye have heard, and, and for me among witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So you and I are likened as believers to a, fighting the good fight 
to a soldier, and as soldiers for Jesus Christ, we must endure hardship. And I want to remind us of this because as we go through these chapters, here are some principles that you and I can be mighty men of God, mighty women of God. And as we go through chapter 12 here, we're going to see 10 principles, again, applied in our lives, how we can endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. Understand that this is a battleground. It's not a playground. That it will always be a battleground. That we war against the enemy. He comes against us. We war against the world. We war against our flesh. These are battles that we're engaged in, and you will endure hardship as a soldier for Jesus Christ. So here is, here is David, back to our text. He's going through hardship, isn't he? He is one that's in Ziglag, and these mighty men begin to, to gather around him. And here's these guys from the tribe of Benjamin, and we know that they gather to him even though he goes to Ziglag because David is going through hard times. He's enduring hardship. So for those of you who like to jot down notes, you may put as number one this principle that as we are doing battle in this world, as we will endure hardships as a soldier for Jesus Christ, number one, don't go to the enemy's territory. You don't go into the enemy's territory. David went to Ziglag in the enemy's territory. We don't have time to go into it tonight, but you can read 1 Samuel chapter 27, and you can see that David kind of made a mess of things. And there's a tendency, especially, David was feeling tired and frustrated. He'd been running from Saul for all those years, and so he says, I'm going to go to Ziglag so I can get away from Saul. At least he won't come to the enemy's territory there. And the tendency can be when we're tired and frustrated spiritually to go to the enemy's territory. It was Paul that said to Timothy, listen, Timothy, no soldier that is fighting for Jesus Christ entangles himself with this world. He, he's not engaged in the things of the world, the affairs of the world. And you and I need to remember that because there can be that tendency to go into the enemy's territory. It's easier. I'm tired. I had somebody who called me this week, and I've had many calls like this. And they were upset. They were frustrated. They're going through a difficult situation with their family. They said, I've always taught my boys to, to stand for the Lord and to tell the truth and, and to do what is right. But it seems like it comes back to bite them, that people lie and tell false things about them. And now they're experiencing the consequences of it. And, and you know, they're wondering, why should I even do that? And I always encourage them, always do what is right. Make sure that, that you are standing for righteousness. Make sure that you're being honest. Don't do those things that you know is compromising or sin. And when we're feeling weak and frustrated, there's going to be that tendency, well, you know what, I might as well lie or I might as well compromise in this area. Don't go into the enemy's territory. Don't get entangled with the affairs of this world. That's number one. So here is David going through a hard time at this time. This, this growth of David's army comes. The diversity of his army is told to us. And again, we begin to, to see that, first of all, from the tribe of Benjamin. And we're not going to go through all these names as they begin here. The chief was Ahazer, and, and the names are listed there. But go to verse 8 here as we survey this. Verse 8 tells us some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shields and spear whose faces were like the faces of lion and were 
were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. So the diversity of David's army, not only did some from the tribe of Benjamin join him, but some of the Gadites. Remember, the Gadites were the ones that were on the east side of the Jordan River. That's where they would settle when they got their allotment, the tribe of Gad. And here we see some more principles, how you and I can endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. Number two, we see here that in verse 8, that they were ones that were mighty men of valor. What does that mean? Gideon was a mighty man of valor. Uh, David's called a mighty man of valor. These guys are called mighty men of valor. What does that mean? It means they were men of courage willing to go to battle. Number two, you need to have courage willing to go to battle because as I mentioned to you, this is a battleground. I think that sometimes Christians think that if I become a Christian, you know, that it's a playground. And sometimes it's taught that those who are on the TV or many behind the pulpit. Kind of everything's going to be great and, and everything's going to be fine and, and there's always victory. There is victory. I'm not saying that there isn't. But that promise is you will endure hardship. That's a promise. You will suffer persecution. The world isn't going to applaud you when you become a Christian. The world will come against you. But here's the thing. That we need to be ones, as the scripture says, be strong and of good courage. Joshua was told that in the Old Testament. It was Paul the Apostle that would tell the church at Corinth, you be strong and of good courage. It takes real courage to live for the Lord and to stand for the Lord, doesn't it? Because we know that the world will come against us. It takes real courage for you who go to work and you say, I'm going to be a man or a woman of integrity and honesty. I'm not going to be deceiving. I'm not going to join in with the office gossip. I'm not going to join in with the guys that are telling the dirty jokes. I'm not going to go with the gang after work and, and whoop it up and go to the bars and party and all of this. I'm not going to do that. It takes real courage to stand for righteousness and what is true and what is pleasing for the Lord. It takes real courage for moms and dads to say that as for me in our home, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to stand for the Lord. And others in your neighborhood, they might make fun of you and talk about you. Yeah, that's the family that they go to church. You know, they're reading their Bibles. They're the religious ones. It takes real courage for you guys at the college campus or any of our young people upstairs that go to school to stand for Jesus Christ. It takes real courage for any of us to speak truth to others. And in this world, as we do battle, to be a mighty man or woman of valor, it means that I'm willing to, Lord, to go to battle, give me the courage, help me to be strong and of good courage. Help me to be strong and of good courage. And that's what these guys were. Number three, they were trained for battle, it says. We need to be trained for battle. Anybody who goes into the military, what do they do? They train them. They are constantly being trained in the military. You know, being a chaplain for the sheriff's office, that those peace officers, they constantly are being trained, always going to training all the time because they need that training. 
And so we need to be trained as Christians as we go out and do battle. And the way that we are trained, the way that we're mature, is that we need to grow in the Word of God. We need to be yielded and sensitive to the leading of the Lord. We need to continue in that. What happens with Christians sometimes is they think, oh, I've been to Bible study, I've gone to church, I've, I've read those stories. We need to continually and constantly be growing in the Word of God. You can never exhaust the Word of God. And you guys know this. They've been around here long enough. One of the reasons why we place such an emphasis on the teaching of the Word of God here at Calvary Chapel, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is because it is training you for battle. It's making you strong. It's maturing you in the things of the Lord. And that's the way to do it. There's all kinds of books that are out there. There's all kinds of you know, teachings on how to you know, be strong and Christian and how to be victorious. The way to be strong is you be a man or woman of the Word of God. And you be yielded and sensitive to the leading of the Lord. And you continue in that. Continue growing. Continue learning. And that's going to train you for battle. Because I know that when battles come up, I can go to the Word of God and say, Lord, this is what you have to say about this situation or this circumstance. So thirdly, they were trained for battle. Number four. There are ones who can handle shield and spear, as it says here. We need to be ones, as we're being trained for battle, we are able to handle the shield and the spear. You remember that Paul in the armor of God? Again, the kids will be learning this uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of God is have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You need to be able to apply the word of God, not only in your own life, but as you're ministering to others. You need to be able to give godly counsel to be able to apply God's word in situations and circumstances, not only your own, but others that are around you. They don't need your opinions necessarily. They don't need your ideas or your cleverness. What people need as we talk with them is we need to give them the truth of God's word. And God will oftentimes give us opportunities. As you're growing in the word of God and you see that somebody comes in and they're going through a difficult situation and the world's giving them confusing counsel. Remember Paul said to the Colossians that don't be cheated through world philosophy and, and, and traditions of men. That which is not of Christ. And you don't cheat them either. You give them the Word of God and be able to, as you go through the Word of God, say, you know what, this is what the Bible has to say about the circumstance that you're facing or the difficulty that you're going through. And you're able to apply it. You're one that your handles shield and spear. So being able to apply the Word of God to others, that's why you want to grow, not only for your own life, but to be able to minister to others. And then they had, number five, they had faces like lions. I think faces like lions, these guys must have been really ugly or something, I don't know. But faces like lions, I, I imagine that they had faces of warriors, you know? But it's speaking of their countenance. So what's your countenance like? Do you have the countenance of Jesus Christ? When you go to the workplace or visit with your neighbor or other family members, do people see something of Christ, his peace, his joy, his love, his light that radiates from you, your countenance? You know, if you stop and you watch people, you can tell kind of what they're going through by their countenance, whether they're happy or whether they're going through difficulties or hard times. 
And what my prayer for us as Christians as we go out into this world and as we're doing battle in the world, that we would have the countenance, kind of like Moses when he came down from the mountain. He was glowing, wasn't he? And the people noticed it. They said, Moses, you're glowing. You need to put a veil on your face. That we would glow our countenance of something of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. That our countenance wouldn't always be grumping or complaining and going to work, you know, and joining in with everybody else. I hate this place. I hate the boss. You know, and, and we can easily fall into that. But what is your countenance like? The face of a lion. Number six says here that they were swift as gazelles on the mountains. You can go to Israel today and you can see some of those gazelles. They, they remind me a little bit of the antelope, what we have here in, in our you know, part of the country. Uh, J.D. and I were able on Monday to get away to Wyoming. We must have seen a million antelope you know, as we were up there. And we've all seen antelope. And they're amazing, aren't they, in how fast they are and how quickly they can run. They're swift, and gazelles are kind of like the same thing. They're in Israel and in Africa. Uh, they, they are swift. They're moving. Listen, to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you've got to keep moving in the forward in the things of the Lord. You can't be stagnant. You can't be stagnant. And that is something that can happen very, very easily in our Christian walk and in our Christian journey. You certainly don't want to go backwards and backslide, but you don't want to be stagnant either. And many Christians are comfortable and very content in being stagnant. I'm right here. This is the way I am. This is the way I'm going to be. I'll go to church once in a while. I'll have some Bible study once in a while. But you don't want to be stagnant, not as an individual. You don't want your family to be stagnant. You want to continue to speak of the things of the Lord, parents raising your children in the ways of the Lord. And as a church, we don't want to be stagnant. And I think that's one of the greatest threats to any church and to this church. There's a lot of threats against the church. But I think one of the greatest threats is when a church becomes very complacent and becomes stagnant. And listen, folks, that can be something that can happen very, very easily here at Calvary Chapel. And I'll tell you why. Because things are good. We're a debt-free church. The staff is tight. Man, there's sweet fellowship that takes place here. And it's very easy to get complacent and get stagnant. And this is where we're at, and this is what we do things, and this is the way that we like it. But it can bring, eventually, the stench of death to a church. And I've seen it happen. To where they're stagnant, they're complacent, and over the years, pretty soon, spiritually, that church begins to die. And it can happen to us if we are not moving forward in the things that the Lord wants us to. And that's why I want to be always, Lord, what is it that you want to do here at Calvary Chapel? And I'm excited what the Lord is doing. And I know he wants to do so much more that I feel like he's just beginning. I want to, to continue to minister to families, continue, you know, and praying and, and with the radio program, reaching all of northern Colorado, reaching our young people, ministering to them, it, it, and being ones that, that we are encouraging them. And I know that it's happening because I love what's happening with our young people. But we don't want to stay stagnant. We don't want to just get complacent. And all of a sudden we're a group of, well, this is the way we are and this is the way we do it. And 
because I'll say this very honestly and humbly, that I know that there are churches, even in our community, that they're dying out. At one time were vital ministries and young people, but they're dying out and their buildings are empty because they became stagnant. So we want to be careful that we don't. We want to keep moving forward. We want to be swift as gazelles, just moving forward in what the Lord has for us and for our families and for you individually. So here were the Gadites. They, they were very special individuals. And again, some of the names are given to us there. And then verse 15, if you go there, concerning the Gadites, these were ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when they had overflowed all its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. So they would be, again, as I mentioned to you, on the east side of the Jordan River, and they came to the river to join David, and the river is overflowing its banks, uh, its runoff time, and they did not say, well, I guess we'll go back home. They were determined to join David. So number seven, here it speaks of commitment and devotion. To endure hardship as a soldier of Jesus Christ, you must be committed and devoted and continue in that. Let me ask us all a question. What keeps you or what gets in your way from serving the Lord or having a full commitment to the Lord or from sharing your faith or from being in fellowship? They had to to make a lot of effort and expend a lot of energy to find a way we're going to get over this Jordan River so we can join David. And it does take effort and it takes energy as you desire to serve the Lord in your commitment to the Lord. And sometimes it's very easy to get, to get very complacent. I, I don't want to get up. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are out here on a snowy night in May. You know? <laughs> but it's very easy to say, you know what? I don't want to get up and warm up the car and get the kids dressed. And, you know, I think we'll just stay home and, and to put that energy into it. You know what amazes me? Another honest evaluation, as I observe. How it can be snowy, and then, you know, nobody will go to church, but you drive by Walmart, and the thing is packed out the parking lot. (laughs) We're going to get to David. I don't care if the river is overflowing. We're going to find a way. We'll go east, we'll go west, we'll go through somewhere. We're going to find a way. And what my prayer is that that is a priority for all of us in our commitment and devotion to the Lord, that we're going to gather with God's people, that we're going to serve the Lord, we're going to uh, continue in sharing our faith with others. We're going to expend the energy. We're going to make the effort to do that. And then in verse 16, Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. And David went out to meet them and answered and said to them, If you have come peaceably to me and help me, my heart will be united with you. But if to betray me to my enemy, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. Then the Spirit came upon Amasa, chief of the captains, and he said, We are yours, O David. We are on your side, son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David didn't know for sure if these guys from Benjamin and Judah, if they were really going to be loyal to him or they were just infiltrating the camp to come against David. And David says, listen, if you are for me, we'll be united in heart, number eight. 
They endure hardship as a, as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. What really helps us is when we're united in heart. We're united together. Paul would talk about this to the church of Philippi. That was a very special church to Paul. They gave to Paul. Paul had a very special relationship with them. And as he writes his letter to them, he says, "You guys, your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And he would talk to them about that you strive together with one mind and one heart because there was division that was going on in the church that he would address later. So being united together our hearts with one mind, one spirit. And how is it that we can have that unity be united together? Well, Paul writes about that in chapter 2, the book of Philippians. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but with lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, and looking out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. It is wonderful when we come together united in heart. We live in a very cynical society where we like to criticize and tear people down and, you know, gossip and all this other stuff. It shouldn't be that way with the church. Our hearts being united, lifting each other up. Paul would say to the church of Philippi, approve the things that are excellent. We should be encouraging each other, improve the things that are excellent. I can look at anybody's life, you can look at my life, and we can nitpick each other to death. But we want to encourage each other. We want to bless each other and be united as we gather together. And it's wonderful to have that in the body of Christ. And then verse 19, Then some from Manasseh effected to David, and he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul. But they did not help them, for the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying, He may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. And so he went to Ziglag, those of Manasseh who defected to him, and those names are given there of the thousands who were from Manasseh. And here they helped David against the bands of raiders, and they were all mighty men of valor, and they were captains of the army. You see, some of Manasseh defected, and it's interesting that when David was in Ziglag, he was there for, um, I think, 18 months is what the text tells us. And then at the end of the 18 months, here's the Philistines, they grew so strong, remember that? that they did battle against Saul and they defeated Israel. And before that battle, they're showing their army and David and his men show up and the lords of the Philistines say, hey, that's David. He's defected to us, but we can't use him in war. He'll turn against us perhaps. So David, go back to Ziglag. And we know that David, shortly after that, when Saul died on Mount Gilboa, he would go to Hebron with his mighty men. And these guys from Manasseh, even though the other 11 tribes were following the house of Saul. And in 2 Samuel chapter 3, it says that the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker, and the house of David grew stronger and stronger. To endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ, that the spirit needs to get stronger and stronger in our lives, and the flesh weaker and weaker. That we're just not interested in the things of the flesh. The world doesn't, you know, enamor me, interest me, the things of the world. And we're not pursuing the pleasures of the world. May the spirit be stronger and stronger. Walk in the spirit. You won't fulfill the desires of your flesh. Paul writes to the Galatian believers. So that's one of the ways that we can endure hardship that you're walking in the Spirit, the things of the flesh and the world are getting weaker and weaker in our lives. And then as we finish tonight, and then we're going to go to the communion table, in verses 23 through uh, 37, 
we see that these were the numbers of the divisions that equipped for war and came to David at Hebron and turned over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. It's interesting. You go through all these the sons of Judah in verse 24, the sons of Simeon, the sons of Levi uh, that are named there, the sons of Benjamin in verse 29, and, and you know, 3,000 are gathered. Um, there, the sons of Benjamin, mighty man, famous man throughout their father's house. Manasseh is gathered. Verse 32, we see that the son of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200, and all their brethren at their command. That caught my attention. So all these guys, they send thousands of their mighty men and valors and favors men. Uh, the tribe here, as we see in verse 32 that is listed to us, Issachar, they only send 200 because they understood the times. In other words, they understood David's supposed to be the king. He's the king. We're going to send, you know, 200 guys to represent us, to tell us. But they understood the times that David is going to be the king. This is very important. We'll end with this. You want to endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ? Understand the times that we're in. That we're in the last days. And a son of David, the greater than David, Jesus Christ, is coming back. And I believe that he can come back for us at any time. And even though we live in very perilous times and very difficult times to make a stand for Jesus Christ, it's very exciting times to be serving the Lord. May we understand the times. Remember John, that he got exiled to the island of Patmos there at the end of the first century? The Christians were going through great persecution by the hands of Domitian, the emperor of Rome. He hated the Christians. He persecuted them heavily. And here is John about almost 30 years after the death of Paul and Peter who died at the hands of Caesar and Nero. Here is John. He's the last living apostle. They try to put him into a pot of boiling oil. Nothing happens to him. So they said, what do we do with this, John? We thought if we got rid of him, this thing called Christianity would die out. Let's exile him to the island of Patmos. And John writes about that I, exiled to the island of Patmos, share with you, my brothers, in tribulation and trials and persecution. And John would receive the apocalypse, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then eventually Domitian would die. John would be released from that island. He would go back to Ephesus where it's believed. He would then pastor the church at Ephesus, the apostle of love, going to pastor the church that had left their first love. And he comes to them. And he gives them the apocalypse and says, I'm your brother in tribulation. And they needed to know that Jesus was on the throne and that Jesus was coming back and that he's going to establish his kingdom. And we need to know that in the days in which we're living in. Understand the times. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders. You can discern the weather, but you can't discern the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus said, you be the wise and faithful servant that is looking for the master's return. Know that the birth pangs, what they are, and we're seeing the birth pangs, aren't we? We're seeing the events that are coming that take place, and again, we don't have time to go into it, that is pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. I think that we're seeing those events that could lead to Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38 and Isaiah chapter 17. You say, what are those? Go home and read your Bible and understand the times in which we're living in. That this isn't a time to be lethargic and complacent and not being trained for battle. God wants to use you and me, every single person that is here, in a powerful way to be a mighty man and woman of God, to endure hardship as a soldier of Jesus Christ. But we got to be training. 
And we got to know how to handle the spear, right? And the sword, the word of God. We got to be able to be committed and devoted to the Lord. We got to be ones that we're moving in the spirit, not being dominated by the flesh. We need to be ones that our hearts are united as we come together as a church, what the Lord will do with us. That we're not going to go into the enemy's territory. And you watch what the Lord will do. Understanding the times that the times are short. The Lord's coming back, and there are people that need to hear about Jesus Christ. And I want to be a soldier for you. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time, Lord, that we've had together. And, Father, I just pray right now tonight as we're soldiers for Jesus Christ. Maybe there's someone here tonight, maybe out in the coffee shop or in the sanctuary, that you haven't enlisted. In other words, to be able to, to be a part of a soldier for Jesus, you got to surrender your life to him. We're going to open up the communion table here. And as we come to the communion table, we are recognizing the new covenant. As we hold the elements, the bread symbolizing his body that was broken for us, and in the cup, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. But it doesn't mean anything to an unbeliever. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. What I did in going to Calvary's cross to provide forgiveness of sin. I rose from the grave. I'm alive. And if you're here and you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do so tonight. That today is the day of salvation. That if you've never really said, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of the Savior, not a Savior, the Savior. Jesus is the only one that can save you. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins, and I now turn to you. I repent. My life is not my own. And I recognize that you died for my sins that has separated. The wages of sin is death. And I ask that you would forgive me because I believe you atoned for my sin. You've redeemed me. Thank you for dying for me. You just pray that prayer. Jesus, forgive me. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you died for my sins. You rose again and you're alive. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. That You died for me. I want to enlist as a soldier for you. And help me to live for you all the days of my life to endure hardship as a soldier for Jesus Christ. For you, Lord. Because I come in faith, trusting in the finished work of the cross and knowing that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And Father, I pray that right now as we continue in worship, right now we, we come to the communion table.